And thank you, everybody, for the first season, the first episode of Strange and Eerie Tales. Uh, my name is Eric, the Skeptic Believer, and I have my co-host. Barbecue Gabe Wellborn. All right. Um, what we do is um, we um, definitely look at different tales that are eerie and strange and try to find some kind of conclusion to it, maybe a logical explanation, um, just really thinking outside the box. Now, uh, Gabe, I really have one that I really want to uh, discuss with you today. Um, it's about a family who is in Australia. Um, now, what's crazy about this is a lot of um, authorities, I've never seen anything quite like this. So... Um, what I'll kind of read over a few things, and you just kind of tell me what you think about it. It's kind of odd, uh, really. Um, so uh, let me go ahead and bring that up here. And it looks like uh, uh, the uh, police arrived at the Trump's family's home in civilian Victoria on August 30th, 2016, where they found the doors unlocked, the station wagon was missing, but they had other cars that were left behind, and the keys were still in the ignition. Now, passports, mobile phones, bank cards belonging to the family uh, were discovered inside, along with like piles and piles of financial and business documents that were like neatly, like somebody was kind of looking through it, uh, you know. Um, so it's really kind of odd that, you know, everything, the only thing they really had was a, a little pile of money. Uh, they left everything behind. Uh, the police really don't know why they left everything behind. Um, really, with the story, they feel that um, they feel um, it was more of a mental illness because he always thought somebody was after him. Um, but um, by then, um, Mark, who's the who's the dad? He's fifty one. Uh, his wife, Jacoba, who she was fifty three, and then they had three children. They have Rihanna, which is twenty three. They have Mitchell, who's twenty five, and they have Aaliyah which was 22, um, but they were all like uh, hundreds of uh, kilometers uh, into their journey. Um, and it really seems a, a very bizarre case. Um, and it was uh, definitely became a bizarre missing persons case in recent Australian history. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of it's odd that, you know, the whole family just picked up and left. Now, to me, they said that the dad had more of a mental illness thinking as there's people but, but well, why would everybody follow him well i mean things like that you really can't explain why a paranoid person is paranoid or why he thinks people might be after him or spying on them or anything like that and it would actually for someone who's paranoid it would make sense that the only thing they'd take with them is a car and cash because they'd be trying to stay off the grid Right, and you know, and they have a timeline of of what exactly happened. Like um, on Monday, August 29th, the family fled their civilian home and drove towards NSW, about 32 kilometers into the journey. Uh, Mitchell's, who's the the middle son, he actually um, had his mobile phone, but it seemed like they just threw it out the car because the dad said that it could be tracked, it could be traced. Um, so it, it seems maybe the kids were kind of uh, on board. Maybe the dad was really convincing, you know, saying, hey, you know, because, I mean, I feel like somebody who has mental illness who really believes and really paranoid and really believes that um, they really um, are being chased or they're being followed can be real believable because they actually believe it themselves. Not only that, but when uh, you have family involved, there's also 
that protective issue. You know, if you know that maybe your dad's, uh, you know, he's paranoid and possibly a danger to himself, uh, and you know he's going to go on this trip, uh, I mean, would you not want to go with him to make sure he's safe, that he's not doing something to put himself in jeopardy, uh, whether or not you believe, you know, that somebody's following him or not? Right. Yeah. And I understand that, you know, you want to make sure, especially somebody with mental health issues, you want to make sure they're safe. But why, to my understanding is why they leave everything behind and they only brought cash. Like if they knew that he was in a mental health state, then why would they have not, you know, uh, got a couple of credit cards or instead of just bringing cash, maybe he was convincing and maybe there was somebody following him. You know, there maybe was somebody that was tracing him. You never know. I mean, it was just so weird that the whole family kind of just picked up and left. Yeah, and even with the cell phone that was thrown out the window, I mean, you're not just going to... I mean, that was an adult son. I believe it said he was 25 or 29 years old. Mm -hmm. 25. Uh, Yeah, you're not just going to take an adult man's cell phone without him arguing or putting up a fight of some way so the, the odds are that cell phone was handed over to be thrown out right and then on uh august 30th uh, which was tuesday here uh, near the blue mountains uh the two sisters then stole a car drove back south uh to where they're from and then uh they went their separate ways so <clears throat> that's what's crazy is they stole a car you know it, it seems like you know something was happening maybe behind the scenes because now you got the two sisters the following day still in cars, uh, you know, to drive back to, you know, to the uh, Goldburn uh, area. Then they just kind of went their separate ways. And, um, you know, um, the youngest one, she continued to drive on the uh, civilian uh, Why the uh, Rihanna was found um, that afternoon in the back seat of a stranger's uh, uh, car in which you know, she attempted to steal the ride. Uh, the driver actually, um, driven for several uh, kilometers, uh, when he felt a kick in the back seat. So she was trying to, she was trying to, uh, you know, she was trying to steal that car and he found her in the back seat. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on. that just doesn't add up. You know, if there's, you know, for example, if, you know, they're trying to help their dad out, but yet they're turning around, they're stealing cars and committing these crimes. They don't have any credit cards. It's all cash. It's just something just seems off about the situation. Yeah, with the two daughters, uh, it definitely seems like there was some desperation there to get away from the situation the rest of the family was in. If I'm, That's what I'm reading anyways. Um, you've got two young women who for whatever reason, went on this trip, were they forced to? Is that why, were they forced to go on this trip is what I'm wondering because they get to a point where maybe they finally got a chance to get away and they don't have a lot of time probably, so why not steal a car when you have no money or other way to procure transportation? Right, and they, they could have been forced. Um, you know, I mean, I, we don't really know how the dad uh, is proceed. We don't know if he was a good father. We don't know um, if he was very intimidating, Um, you know, because there's some people who, um, you know, have mental illness that um, they get attitudes or, you know, because, you know, maybe they're bipolar, you know, and if they're not on their medicine, you know, they can flip, you know, and it can get scary. You know, if somebody who's in a mental health state, you know, turns around and and gets angry or gets upset, um, it can really put effect on them. 
Yeah, and I'm honestly, I'm wondering if the authorities looked into it at all, whether uh, the the father in question, uh, I forget his name now, but um, was he on a medication that maybe he had stopped taking? Right. Like some right. kind of mood stabilizer or uh, antipsychotic. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff to go there because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, he clearly had some sort of mental health issue. So odds are he was medicated. Oh, it gets it gets even weirder. It gets <laughs> even weirder. All right. So on August thirty first, which was a Wednesday, uh, Mitchell, who is the oldest son, uh, arrived or he, he was the, the oldest son. Well, he's the only son. Uh, arrived home that morning um, after having an overnight, you know, catching an overnight train from Sydney, um, <clears throat> and then um, it seems like it seems like on the first, which is Thursday. It seems like Mitchell Trump appeared on the, the uh, Channel 9 alongside the police, um, and he said he was scared that people were after him, that he's not in a good state of mind, that he was talking about his dad. Like, he wasn't in a good state of mind. He thought people were after him. And this is after he came back, after he took a train, came back, after he threw his phone out of the car, you know, came back and, and let you know the news know, you know, and, and let the community know, hey, my dad's not right. You know what I'm saying? He's, but yet he's still out there somewhere. Like everyone's coming back, but the dad is still, the dad is still out there. And, and I don't know if they kind of got scared and decided to try to come back. Uh, I don't know if he tried to pull something or anything of that nature, but it, it just feels like, you know, like maybe something happened to the point where it split up the family. Cause it, cause at the beginning it, 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 it seemed like they were close, but now they're like, you know, they, they're still in cars and they're going their separate ways and they're, you know, and the son, you know, he's coming out after he, uh, you know, got on a train and came back to his area. He came to the news and the community is like, hey, listen, my dad's not right. Yeah, and that's, that just brings me back to it of whether or not they were forced to go on this trip with their parents or not. Uh, now, I know that I said earlier it's hard to force, you know, an adult, you know, three adults, uh, even if they are your children, to do something. Uh, maybe there was maybe there was some violence involved that or something, but it feels to me like it that there was something forced here, and that's why it seems like as soon as these the three children uh, in question got a chance to, they all left. They left this trip. They left their parents. But where's had, the wife? They had to get away. Uh, you know, that's another thing. Where's the wife in all this? Like, she's just been really silent. Yeah, I mean, well, maybe she's just one of those old school wives that's just very submissive to her male partner to mm-hmm. where she's going to follow him blindly no matter what he's he does. Right, right. That make that makes sense cuz that's when I was when I was looking into the story, that was my main concern like is the wife, you know, is she all right? Is she, you know, is she by his side? Is she somewhere else? Is she cuz it doesn't really speak a whole lot about the wife it, you know it speaks more about the children um and mark who's who's the one that the you know the father in the situation uh now on september 1st uh it looks like mark was uh, located running along a street um and uh he was picked up by the police and released into a uh, uh several hours later to the family but he was also but he was also uh, driven away and it, you know um and you know he he gave the media the middle finger like he was very abrupt with the media like he didn't want to be 
uh, you know, he didn't want to be interviewed. He didn't want to, you know, he was very uh, standoffish, but yet he was very rude to the media, you know, which, you know, again, um, somebody with mental health issues, not on their medicine. I can see that, you know, uh, you know, to where they abruptly, you know, give the media the middle finger or, you know, you do things that you maybe possibly regret, you know, in that situation. Yeah, and I wonder if they've, uh, I wonder if drugs might have been involved at all either. I know we talked about maybe being off his meds, but I mean, what if he had been on something else, uh, narcotic wise, is what I'm curious about at this point. Because we, I mean, me and you have both seen the area we live in, we've both seen how people behave when they're on stuff. And this seems right. very similar to somebody who may be on, you know, methamphetamine or something of that nature. Right, yeah, definitely, um, because, you know, to my understanding, when somebody is on, like, methamphetamine, they can hallucinate, um, they can, you know, I mean, especially if you're up for days, you know, um, your mind starts to play with you, and, you know, you're hearing things that are not there, you're seeing things that are not there. Yeah, and, I mean, I, I'm not sure, uh, the specifics of it, I know that there are, just like anywhere in the world you go to, there are problems with drugs even down in australia um so i I wouldn't be surprised if they found out later that he had been on something illegal or something illicit of that nature right right well uh yeah this is a story that came across i thought it sounded very interesting um i i just really i wish i would have known more about the mom uh just you know with her safety and everything of that nature um but it's let's move on to our next story here and uh, go ahead, Gabe. Yeah, so um, one thing you'll learn about me pretty quick is I'm pretty nutty over history, uh, especially stuff pertaining to world, the First World War and the Second World War. And every now and then, uh, while I'm doing my own little research into these things, I come across some strange stories, sometimes spooky stuff like the one I have today, uh, which happened in the winter of 1943 during World War II. Mm, okay. Uh, now, this story was first posted online by Reddit user Igloo444, uh, the background being that his grandfather, who had been a British soldier in World War II, uh, would tell him this story growing up as kind of a scary bedtime story. Okay. Uh, though he, he always claimed that it was a true story. So I'll just kind of get right into it. Okay. Uh, so in the winter of 1943... A company of British soldiers who were stationed at a small village in the Swiss Alps, uh, they kind of came across this very strange situation of disappearing children. Uh, Now, at the time, Switzerland was considered neutral, but had started, uh, Allied troops had started stationing themselves along the borders of the country because it was surrounded by Germany. And they felt like both sides really wanted a piece of Switzerland, and they felt with it being surrounded by german territory that an an invasion was imminent did they um did they ever like blame uh, any of the soldiers for the missing children did they um was there anything about that there... uh, you'll see it wasn't so much uh blame as in we know you took our children give them back it was more of a uh our children are missing and you guys aren't doing anything oh okay but um so you have this small british company of soldiers there it's a very isolated place. It's the winter in the mountains, so you're not going to really... It's already hard enough to communicate with the outside world. Add to that a series of intense blizzards that winter mm-hmm. that 
basically shut down all the roads and communication altogether. Oh, wow. So there's no way for anybody in the village, military or civilian, to contact anybody outside of here or get out themselves. So you got this village. It's roughly 500 inhabitants, and you know, you've got these British soldiers there. One night, uh, br- the British soldier who told this story, the grandfather, claims he was sitting at a pub having a drink with a couple of his friends when a villager approached him. Uh, now, the villager, he spoke German, but he didn't ver- speak very good English, but he managed to say, where take you the children? So at that point, you know, they they know well, something's going on. They try to communicate with him, but nobody there really speaks a lot of German. Right. So they take them to their, what they're using as a command post is a church in the town. And their captain has an interpreter talk to this guy. Uh, now what they find out is that at this point, three children have gone missing uh, over, since the British soldiers got there. Mm-hmm. And two of the children belonged to the, were sons of the man who approached the Englishman in the bar. Okay. So... I mean, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are right now. I mean, you're in an isolated place. It's winter time. It's already a spooky setup, if you ask me. But right. now you have missing children. Yeah. Now, you know, when they were in the pub, and the guy asked, you know, who it sounded like. I mean, his English wasn't very strong or very, but it sounded like to me that he was asking, "What did they do with the children?" Like, I feel like the blame is already on the soldiers. You know, um, which. Again, uh, you know, being in an isolated area, um, we don't really know. You know, a lot of people in isolated areas um, are, um, they have their own beliefs. They have their own, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, they want to stay away from the outside world. And, you know, and I feel like maybe, you know. Um, and superstitions, of, superstitions too in areas like that. Right. Even today. Right. But, um, I mean, that would be my first, my first, you know, uh, initial thought would be, you know, the soldiers took him. That would be my first initial thought if I was in that situation. You know, especially being with World War II, everything going on, you know, in those territories. So that would be my first assumption would be somebody took him. The other one would be probably, uh, you know, maybe, you know, I mean, I know like, you know, little uh, organizations like Mormons and stuff like that where they allow their children to leave to experience the outside world. You know, and they could have done that as well. Uh, yeah, and th- there was definitely some thoughts of that going along. But um, let me get back on the story, uh, backtrack just a little bit. Uh, so as the captain is translator getting the story, uh, what they find out is uh, almost immediately after the soldiers arrived, they started noticing small things missing, small vandalisms and thefts around the town before the children went missing. Uh, they're noticing, you know, tools and bits of wood and tarp from the different uh, houses and buildings in town are, are being broken and taken away. Mm-hmm. And so at first it's just trivial things like that, but then they notice more valuable things, you know, larger tools. And even uh, in particular, they uh, villagers noted that a heirloom halberd, which is a uh, kind of like a large medieval battle axe, uh, wow. had been stolen from its place over his family's mantelpiece. Uh, and after that, Halberd went missing, the first of the children did. 
And now at first, you know, the children, a couple children go missing. They're thinking, well, maybe these kids are just getting lost out in the woods or mm-hmm. getting caught in snowdrifts. And as tragic as it is, right. they're freezing to death. That and, makes sense. And maybe we'll find them during the spring thaw. They're not thinking anything malicious here. Uh, but then after a couple more go missing, they realize something's up. And that's when they finally approach the British soldiers about this. And according to the father who had approached the British soldiers at the pub, you know, he had searched high and low all over the village and surrounding areas for his children. Uh, he even put together a small posse and he wasn't able to find any trace of them anywhere. So with all the vandalism going on, like, you know, before the children uh, ended up missing, was there not any witnesses, nothing to, uh, you know, because it sounds like, you know, vandalism here and there, somebody would have saw something or, you know, or something of that nature before the kids started missing and then try to put two and two together when the children started missing. Um, It's just weird that there wasn't really any witnesses. Like, they kind of knew what they were doing, you know? There wasn't any witnesses or anything of that nature. And and my kind of, like, train of thought on this was that, you know, you you notice, like, a floorboard or maybe one of the boards on your uh, the wall of your barn has been broken and missing. Maybe you're blaming, you know, maybe an animal came in at night and did it or something. Uh, It's definitely not something, doesn't seem something to me that you would really raise a huge uh fuss about and the and get everybody all riled up but then once you have like the tools and the weapons missing that's definitely when i would have raised an alarm or something i definitely would have raised said something as soon as the first kid went missing right but again you know certain areas of the world you know especially isolated ones they're set in ways they do things i'm sure they've probably had missing children during the winter before who had gotten lost and frozen to death so i, I can understand i wouldn't necessarily do it but i can understand why they would wait to bring it up to the british uh until after several of them had been missing now what the captain decides to do to try and put everybody at ease here is he's gonna he promises that as soon as the spring thaw comes around, he's going to get more people out there, more people into the town to help find out what happened. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, he's going to be doubling the patrols at night of his soldiers who patrol the town uh, during the nighttime hours. Okay. Um, but as you'll see, like that's exact that same night that this happens, uh, one of the British soldiers, uh, a private Reginald, disappeared from his barracks without a trace. And then, of course, the rumors start flying in the village at this point that uh, there's several theories in, uh, that the villagers have and the British. Uh, in fact, the British thought maybe some of someone in the village was selling the children to the Brit- or to the uh, German army. Oh, okay. Uh, to Germans over the border. Uh, Which makes sense. I mean. And, yeah, and the villagers had similar theories that maybe the children were getting abducted by the Germans, or possibly they even thought that there might have been a monster in the mountains that was taking them. Um, I did a little research into what kind of folk monsters there are in Switzerland that they could possibly think it was. The only thing I could come up with was a tatzel worm that is a creature known for abducting adults and children at night. 
Uh, but there's not too much information on them, unfortunately. Oh, so do you know? Do, can you give it a little bit more of what a tussleworm is or a tussleworm? I'm not really sure what that is. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not even very sure what it is. There, I came across a few different uh, descriptions of it. They were always different. Some say it was reptilian. Some say mammalian. But mm. all I really got from it that was consistent was that it was known to abduct and eat people from small villages in the mountains. Okay. Um. But again, so you've got all these rumors and theories that everybody's coming up with. Um, and now you've got your first and only missing adult in this story, Private Reginald. Right. But uh, three after Reginald disappears, you have three weeks without any incident. You know, early spring comes and snows begin to melt. Uh, and the British soldiers start... You know, their patrols are getting a little easier, but they're still finding no signs of the children. Right. And in fact, by then, four more kids have gone missing, four or five, and it brings the total up to between seven and nine uh, children between the ages of five and ten, plus the British soldier, Private Reginald. Now, one night during the spring thaw, the grandfather who originally told this story was on patrol with a few other soldiers, and they spotted a figure... Now, they never elaborate on what this figure is other than that it's a bipedal form peering into a bedroom window of one of the houses in the village. That would be pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially with you already know something's going on. Right, Something right. All that's already creepy plus all these circumstances. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the soldiers shout at this guy or this thing, person, whatever it is, and they startle it and it takes off running across the village. And as it gets to the outskirts, it just disappears. They see that one, they see it one second, then it's gone the next. So they st they move around. Uh, they study the area where the creature disappeared, and what they find is a huge cave that's been dug into a, a large snowdrift and hidden from view. Now the soldiers, they fire a few shots, you know, into the darkness of this cave. And a series of gunshots come back at them, and they all scatter. Now, the, the gunshots, you know, they quickly subside, and the soldiers, one of that, one brave one actually decides he's going to venture into this cave and see what he can find. And the first thing he finds when he goes inside with his torch is the dead body of Private Reginald having been shot during the gunfire exchange. Now they venture, you know, they venture a little further in, and they find not only the things that have gone missing—the tools, the weapons—but right. they find the half-eaten bodies of the children that have been missing. And it was kind of assumed that either due to the, due to the stress of being isolated or some pre-existing mental condition condition that. Private Reginald had snapped and begun abducting these children from their homes. Uh, hmm. The halberd, which was that battle axe I mentioned earlier, was thought to be the weapon that he used to kill them. Okay. Uh, but there's no reason really that I can find as to why he would eat them, or why he would, you know, use them as a food source at that point. So it, it's there's definitely a lot of questions still there. Um, and he could have buried them. They just never found them. You know what I'm saying? So it, exactly. And the biggest thing for me is that I I don't think. I mean, I get the isolation theory, 
but it wasn't as if he was isolated alone, which is usually what happens when somebody snaps from that kind of thing. Right, right. Um, you know, he had an entire company of his fellow soldiers plus 500 villagers there. Usually when you hear of somebody snapping, uh, which I've heard a few stories of scientists stationed in Antarctica, uh, it's usually a small number of people that are with them, so the isolation's a lot more real, as opposed to this where you've got you know, a small community mm. to kind of curb that loneliness. So it's definitely one of the stranger stories I've come across uh, dealing with World War II. And I'm not entirely convinced that this was something that happened uh, because doing my own research, I can't really find any records of British or any Allied troops officially being stationed in Switzerland. Right, and there's, I feel like even, you know, with the story, there's a little bit of uh, different holes in the story that, you know, you really don't know what's going on, uh, you know, with the children missing, the vandalism, uh, and then you had the, the soldier, uh, you know, who disappeared without a trace, um, no witnesses um, when they, with the vandalism, I mean, you know, with it being, you know, sometimes vandalism can get loud. Yeah, you know, and there's no, you know, no witnesses or anything of that nature. So there is a couple of holes, I feel like, maybe when they do discuss this at pubs or anything of that nature. It is a good pub story. You know, I mean, it really is. So um, it makes you think, you know. It's definitely one of those stories you would tell around a campfire. Um, My thoughts on it are it's probably something that didn't happen according to the way the story is presented could just be something i mean i'm sure something similar could have happened uh but i believe what we've got here is more of a tall tale Mm -hmm. uh something that maybe involved a single or maybe two missing children somewhere in the world has evolved in this story of abduction and cannibalism on a much larger scale right Uh, because that's that's usually how these things work they start out with something that's very very close to the truth and then each time they're told it just snowballs more and more until you've got this just grand creepy tale that's fun to tell at the pub and around campfires right and again it was a a fantastic story that was really good well this is our time here um thank you for tuning in i really we really appreciate it uh my name is eric the skeptic believer and i'm barbecue gabe wellborn yep stay strange stay eerie All right, good night.